0: Sharon Morgan first met Bonnie Nettles and Herf Applewhite in the summer of 72, and they struck up an unlikely friendship. Sharon, a real estate agent in Houston, probably never thought she'd find herself seeking spiritual guidance from a couple of self-proclaimed prophets at some metaphysical shop downtown. Sharon was a smart, ambitious career woman, and the proud mother of two beautiful daughters. And as far as her colleagues and clients could tell, she was living the dream. But she couldn't shake the feeling that something was missing some intangible, indescribable something that was just bigger than herself, something
1: beyond. Bonnie and Herf, or the two as they called themselves, definitely piqued her interest. But between work and family, it's hard enough to find time for a weekend trip, much less a spiritual journey. Life just got in the way. As the months dragged on, her husband grew more abusive, she grew more despondent, and that deep, dark emptiness inside her grew into a chasm. It felt like every day was little more than a cruel performance for the sake of the kids and the clients, and she couldn't keep it up much longer. So in the summer of 1974, she wrote a letter to Bonnie Nettles. She wasn't really expecting a response. She just didn't know where else to turn. But a letter came a few weeks later, postmarked from somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, and it had one hell of a lead-in.
0: We are not anything. We were
1: in the past. And whether it was destiny or desperation, Sharon Morgan
0: knew in her heart that
1: she had to go all in.
0: Bonnie and Herf had been on the road for 16 months, proselytizing in parking lots, camping where they could, and selling their own blood for bags of cheap dinner rolls. They were broke, exhausted, and ready to cut their losses when Sharon's letter showed up in their P.O. box. It was the sign they'd been praying for all along. As the two rolled into Houston, Sharon packed a bag, put $25 cash in her pocket, and left two notes on the dresser beneath her wedding ring. One was for her daughters, saying she loved them, and the other was for her husband. It might be best, it read, to imagine that God had simply taken me away in death. She hopped in the back seat of Herf and Bonnie's car and watched in the rear view as her life, her family, and that damn dark emptiness slid off the edge of the Texas horizon.
1: Sharon's people skills came in handy on the road. And the two had her post up outside occult and metaphysical shops watching for anyone who might be quote, pulsing good vibrations.
0: And whenever she'd find them, she'd give them the pitch. Would you be interested in talking to two people who could tell you how to leave this planet and take your body with you? You can sell
1: damn near anything with a big Texan smile, but not everything. For all her efforts and charm, she wasn't having much luck converting the non-believers, and her relationship with the two was starting to strain they didn't much like her proclivity for asking questions about the faith, and she didn't much like their proclivity for skipping out on restaurant checks and running up her credit cards. After a month of failure and what felt a whole lot like criminality, Sharon had a quote dark night of the soul. It wasn't that she doubted them or their message. She believed all of it, wholly and completely. She just needed some time to herself to think. As fate would have it, they were scheduled for a stop in Dallas where she could meet up with an old
0: friend and get a much needed taste of home. But her friend didn't come alone. Sharon's husband, red with rage, grabbed her screaming and dragged her to his car, threatening to have her committed. Sharon watched tearfully in the rear view as Bonnie and her, her hope and salvation, faded away in the airport smog. She hated her husband for all he'd taken from her. She hated him, the world, herself. But when she held her screaming and crying daughters in her arms, she knew her journey had come to an end. The emptiness inside her be damned. It could take her, all of her, bit by piece by shred. And maybe in time, it would. But her kids were the only light she needed in this world gone dark. Bonnie and Herf, racked with guilt and
1: despair, found a light of their own, flashing in the rear view, blue and red. Sharon's husband had called the cops on them for credit card fraud, and Herf had a warrant out for his arrest in St. Louis. Their beat-up green sedan was a rental, and Herf had neglected to return it, for nine months. It didn't mean anything to him at the time, but it seems worth noting that the car was a Mercury model they don't make anymore. The Comet. Herf was sentenced to six months in a Missouri prison for grand theft auto, and he insisted till the day they let him go that he was an innocent man. After all, God himself had given him permission to keep the car. He put his jail time to good use, though ruminating on the message, developing, refining, and writing everything down. Tracks blossomed into manifestos, and soon everything
0: just became so clear. There was an evolutionary level above human, and anyone, all of us, could get there if only we give up our earthly lives and families and follow the two on the righteous path before it's too late. Bonnie and Herf, as they saw it, were the two witnesses, the two lampstands, prophesized in the book of Revelation. And when the time comes, The lamb will open the seven seals, and the beast will ascend to earth from the bottomless pit with hell on his heels. Bonnie and Herve will die by his fangs and talons, but God will raise them up from death and send down a UFO to ferry them up to heaven. In the early months of 1975, the
1: two were finally reunited outside the prison walls. They may not have had any money or a place to go, but they had each other, and the mission. They checked into a hotel room in Ojai, California, and sent their flyers to every spiritual center in town. A few days later, they got an invitation to speak at the house of an aging mystic by the name of Clarence Klug. Around 80 people showed up to Klug's Los Angeles home to hear Bonnie and Herf lay out their message, and their offer. The presentation lasted only about 30 minutes, and Klug wasn't impressed. He thought their doomsayer spiel came off as kinda silly, Which is saying something coming from a self-proclaimed psychic whose personal slogan was, weird turns me on.
0: But much to Klug's chagrin and surprise, about two dozen of the folks who showed up that night decided they had to go all in on Bonnie and Herf. And over the next two decades, hundreds more would come along for the ride. One of the attendees, Dick Jocelyn, asked to meet up with Herf in private to feel him out and ask some questions. He was a 26-year-old college graduate and former Navy officer, and his modeling career was actually taking off. Still, he couldn't shake the feeling that something was missing. Bonnie and Herf's proposition was unusual, no doubt about that, but even if it turned out that they couldn't fill that deep, dark emptiness inside him, at least they acknowledged it was there and no one else ever had. I know you're
1: not con artists,
0: he told Herf, That means either you're who you say you are,
1: or you're absolutely mad.
0: That's right, Dick, Herf said. Which do you
1: think we are? The next day, Dick Jocelyn gave up his car, his apartment, his career, and his parents to join Bonnie, Herf, and the others on the spiritual path they'd come to call Heaven's Gate. Most of us like to think of ourselves as incredulous, rational people. We have a hard time imagining how anyone could possibly be gullible enough to give up everything they have their families, their jobs, their lives. Just cause some dude in a Whataburger parking lot promised them a ride on Jesus Christ UFO.
0: But maybe we give ourselves a little too much credit. We've all been there at some point, searching for whatever it is that might fill that emptiness inside us. Be it faith, guidance, meaning, love, death. Just something bigger, something beyond. Most of the people who joined Heaven's Gate had a good education, successful careers, happy families, and what most folks might call normal lives. There was just something missing. And as macabre as it might sound, in a way, they found it. I'm Ryan Sheffield. And I'm Brad Dewar. And this is Tex Arcana. Oh,
1: Welcome to the second half of our two-episode dive into the faith, fear, and fanaticism that shaped and warped the cultural landscape of Texas. If you missed our last episode, no worries. Just like this one, it's a series of chronological
0: vignettes that can stand on their own, so you won't be lost no matter where you jump in. In the first half of our journey, we explored utopian visions of Texas as heaven on earth. This time around, we're a little more southbound. And fair warning. The stories we're about to tell you are very dark, very graphic, and very real.
1: Bonnie and Herf weren't the first people to see their own lives prophesied in the book of Revelation, and they wouldn't be the last. With all due respect to John the Revelator, he was just a little off on his timeline. The two lampstands may have found their first disciples that fateful night in 1975, but six years earlier, and eight miles south, the beast from the bottomless pit had already come.
0: The 1960s were a decade of cultural upheaval and revolution. The world was in the throes of an existential crisis and the escalating tensions between Soviet communism and the capitalist West were dragging the world to the brink of annihilation. Sovereign nations were undermined, invaded and reduced to pawns. Democracies were birthed in blood and trampled by proxy as the bomb craters and power vacuums became the ready-made mass graves of genocide. McCarthy's communist witch hunt had finally died, years earlier and unceremoniously on the Senate floor, but its shadow still loomed over every aspect of American life, feeding on the ever-present threat of a cold war gone hot, and needling at the worst fears and darkest impulses of a nation gripped by paranoia. The people still believed in witches, and they were among us, hiding in plain sight. As TV shows were making the transition from
1: black and white to vibrant color, the political and social fabric of the country was doing the very same. American culture was cleaving at the fault lines of tradition and progress, and any middle ground there might have been was crumbling into the growing chasm between. A new American duality was taking shape, a culture that existed in contradiction to itself, tearing itself apart from within and holding together only by the ever-fraying thread of fear. After all, We're all in this together when the bombs come down. In a decade of marching forward and lashing back, the turning point, and breaking point, was 1964. It was the year people of color and student activists took the fight for freedom and equality to the streets, campuses, jails, and televisions of America. It was the year they took it all the way to the halls of Congress, and for many of them,
0: to an untimely grave. It was the year Lyndon B. Johnson, a good old boy from Stonewall, Texas, thrust into the Oval Office on a bullet from Dallas, signed the Civil Rights Act into law, ostensibly ending racial segregation in America, rending the Democratic Party in two, and giving rise to a new American right, riding high on the political weaponization of white rage. Senator Barry Goldwater, a firebrand populist from Arizona, was running for president on a platform of militant anti-communism indiscriminate use of nuclear weapons and staunch opposition to the Civil Rights Act. He got 75% of the vote in the Texas Republican primary and accepted the GOP nomination in a packed auditorium in Dallas. Goldwater lost to LBJ in a landslide that November, but his spirit and his message would come to shape the ascendant right wing for decades to come. 1964 was the year that a step toward justice and equality brought us closer together as a nation and drove us, irreconcilably, apart. And it was in that year
1: that Charles Denton Watson, a 19-year-old in Copeville, Texas, heard the Beatles for the very first time. In a place like Copeville, Social Progress was an unwelcome visitor with a tendency to darken the doorstep long after she was due and well before she was welcome, usually met on the porch with sidelong glances in the cock of a shotgun. But Charles Watson was smitten, head over heels from the moment she rolled into town. Charles was what you might call the all-American boy, a high school track star who lettered in football, honor student, boy scout, editor of the school newspaper. He worked for his dad at the family's roadside general store since he was six years old, and led a youth group at the Methodist church in his off time. He was a good kid who went to service every
0: Sunday and prayed every night. But Charles, like a lot of kids, only knew God as an abstraction, this vague amalgamation of his mom and Santa Claus, an invisible, inconsistent disciplinarian who was quick to tell him why not, but unwilling or unable to properly explain why. And like most of us know all too well, puberty is a way of complicating things. Charles was deeply fascinated by girls, something he'd attribute to problems later in life. When he was 16, he started seeing a girl who had what church folks called a reputation. And in a place like Coteville, word got around. His parents made him break it off with her and he promised he would, just like he promised them he'd stay away from the beer. Mom wasn't very hard to fool, he wrote. So I suppose God wouldn't be either. But in a town of less than 200 people, the wide open plains of Collin County were starting to feel more like prison walls. Charles Denton Watson wanted to experience what the world had to offer to live life, have fun, and hopefully meet some girls who didn't grow up on the same street as his parents. Copeville was his hometown. He loved it, and for the most part, it loved him. But Copeville couldn't keep secrets for shit. In the fall of 1964, he enrolled in North Texas State University, known these days as UNT, in his middle namesake city of Denton. Sure, it was only 50 miles away from home, but for Charles, that was huge. It was freedom. Denton
1: was, and is, a unique place. With its relatively small population, absence of skyscrapers, and quaint downtown square, the city has always had a kind of small-town charm, despite being home to two major universities. Plus, it's basically 30 minutes from everything, offering a kid like Charles a taste of distance and freedom without being too far from the comforts of home. In full disclosure, we live in Denton, so we might be a little biased. But if we had to describe it objectively, it's kinda like Austin
0: if all the cool people that moved there had just stayed home. But in 1964, the counterculture hadn't quite found its foothold in town, and Charles fit right in. He'd later write,
1: In other parts of the country,
0: students were taken off in new directions that would
1: not only lead a whole generation to a radical break from the comfortable 50s womb we'd all grown up in, but would destroy that world forever. We didn't know or care about all that in Denton. For us, college still meant fraternities and hazing and driving down to Dallas with a fake ID that got you into German beer halls where you drank out of Pottery Steins and sang along with a polka band.
0: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Charles joined the infamous party frat, Phi Kappa Alpha, and fell in love with the libertine absurdity of Greek life. If Copeville couldn't keep secrets, Denton just didn't have any. He woke up every morning or afternoon knowing he could do whatever he wanted, and no one, not God, Mom, or Santa Claus, could stop him. No one gave a damn if he lived or died. It was heaven on earth. But the perpetual hangover was tanking his GPA, and some run-ins with the law gave his parents and his past a chance to worm their way into his new life. His mother badgered him to focus on his schooling and please come back to church. But he was done with all that, and he was starting to think that Denton might not be far enough away.
1: Junior year, he got a job working the graveyard shift as a baggage handler at Love Field Airport in Dallas, and it came with some killer perks. Charles had never even ridden on a plane before, and now he was cashing in free flight passes every weekend, taking girls on exotic getaways to Mexico and Hawaii. It was, in the parlance of the times, pretty groovy. One weekend, he flew out to LA to visit his friend Rich, a frat brother who hightailed it out of Texas the second he walked off the graduation stage. Rich wanted to give Charles the full LA experience, taking him out to clubs and shows, introducing him to weed that blew his mind and women whose minds were blown when he stood up and called them ma'am.
0: Los Angeles made Denton look like Copeful with a bar and a bus route. People back home in Texas should like to talk a lot about freedom, but those folks ain't never been to LA. When he got back home, he called up his parents and told them he was moving to California. Quote, I didn't want anyone ever again to tell me what to do. Unfortunately, it didn't really work out that way. Charles adapted quick and easy to his new life in California, for a Texas boy at least. He got a job as a wig salesman, and he was pretty good at it. With his commissions from the shop and a little dope slinging on the side, he was making enough money to do California right. He replaced all his flyover state clothes with a hip new wardrobe, grew out his hair, and came to the long overdue realization that college was a waste of time. It was nothing but a brainwash machine that chewed up free spirits and spit out cops and squares. So in 1968, Charles Watson turned on, tuned in, and dropped out of Cal State. When a car wreck landed him in the hospital, his mom came out to visit him for the first time. She missed him, of course, the whole family did. And like any Texan mom, she worried about him sometimes. But Charles was living the California dream. The wreck may have busted his knee, but it also knocked his name off the Vietnam draft rolls and he was making more than enough money to keep the bills paid on time. Of course, he left out the part about being a full-time pot dealer at that point, but what Mom, God, and Santa don't know can't hurt him. He kissed her goodbye and told her, Mom, I'm never coming home again. But like we say, Texas just has a way.
1: One summer night in 1968, Charles was cruising down Sunset Boulevard when a hitchhiker flagged him down from the shoulder. It was a guy around his own age, with long wavy hair and some good vibrations about him. He introduced himself as Dennis Wilson, the drummer for a band called The Beach Boys. Charles hadn't really heard much of their stuff, but his brother back in Texas was a big fan. They drove up the road to Wilson's house in Pacific Palisades, a beautiful and massive hunting lodge that once belonged to the legendary humorist Will Rogers. Charles had never seen anything like it, not even in the fancy part of Dallas. And when Dennis invited him in to meet some friends
0: and smoke some grass, he sure as hell wasn't gonna say no. Dean Morehouse met him at the door, a middle-aged Methodist minister turned acid guru, and he practically dragged Charles into the living room. A raspy voice drifted through the haze of weed and camels, riding shotgun on the abrasive jangle of an old guitar. Charles winced the smoke out of his eyes and saw a man in his early thirties with messy hair and a scruffy beard, strumming out the weirdness for a rapt audience of young women each one pretty enough to end all war with a wink and a smile, and everyone mesmerized by the gravelly croons of a man Dennis Wilson liked to call the wizard. This is Charlie, Dean said. Charlie Manson.
1: Real quick side note, while researching this segment, this entire episode really, we came across a lot of different perspectives and conflicting accounts. We're drawing heavily here from Watson's autobiography, So there may be some inaccuracies, lies, or delusions skittering between the shadows of verifiable fact. But sometimes the best, and only, history we have is wedged somewhere between the testimony and the truth. And there's always more than one side to every
0: story. Shout out to our fellow true crime podcast fans. Please don't add us. This is Tex Watson's side of that story. There was just something about the guy, Charlie Manson, Conversations with him veered into diatribes that ricocheted between deep philosophical musings and the deranged soliloquy of a bus station wino. There was this dark intensity to his eyes. There were the eyes of a man who'd seen a lot of pain in his life and held it so deep down, you couldn't help but wonder if it was something he'd experienced or something he'd inflicted. It was mysterious, intoxicating, scary. But Dean and Dennis were in love with the guy. Everyone was, especially the girls.
1: Charles started spending more and more time at the mansion, chilling out with Dean and his endless buffet of pot, acid, mescaline, coke, speed, and God knows what. The girls came and went at all hours of the day and night, at least a dozen of them, maybe more. And
0: Charles Watson was just drunk on the beautiful weirdness of it all. Dean talked about Manson constantly, and for the most part, Charles just half listened or tuned him out while the dope did its thing. But with every acid trip they took, it was making more and more sense. The girls followed Manson around like sheep, obeying his every command. And to Charles, that was like a fantasy come true. And it wasn't just about the power dynamics. Everyone was in love with everyone. They shared everything. They had no rules, no boundaries. And they seemed to accept one another for who they were, unconditionally, almost like a family, Dean said. And Charles wanted in. Back in May,
1: Wilson had picked up a couple of the girls hitchhiking. And before long, Charlie Manson and the rest of the family showed up in his driveway. Wilson gave them free reign of the place and bankrolled their every whim, loaning them his cars, his credit cards, even buying the penicillin shots for their frequent run-ins with the clap. In exchange, Manson gave him free reign over the girls. In a matter of months, Wilson had spent what today would amount to $720,000 on the family. But by August, they were starting to wear out their welcome. Wilson needed a break from the non-stop partying and Manson's erratic, aggressive mood swings. He up and left his house one day without explanation, and his manager came by to kick the family out for good. Charlie and the girls found a new home for themselves at a place called Spawn Ranch. And with nowhere else to go, Charles and Dean came with. The 55-acre ranch in East L.A. had once served as a set for Western B-movies, Marlboro commercials, and a couple episodes of Bonanza, but by that point it was run down and washed up, barely keeping afloat by renting out horses on the weekends.
0: The owner was an 80-year-old blind man named George Spawn, who agreed to let the family live there in exchange for work on the ranch and, of course, sexual favors from the girls. He was especially fond of Lynette Frome, he nicknamed Squeaky for the sound she made when he touched her, and who, six years later, would attempt to assassinate President Gerald Ford and end up in a Fort Worth prison until her parole in 2009. But anyway, Spawn had a knack for assigning nicknames and making them stick, so when Charles Watson introduced himself, the old man instantly pegged his drawl and gave him a new name, Tex. Manson loved it, after all, there could only be one Charlie. They settled into their new life on the ranch,
1: and the family was growing fast. Within weeks, there were 30 people living there, mostly women, which struck Tex as a little strange. Charlie made no secret of his misogyny or racism. He would rant about the inferiority of, quote, blackie, or his belief that women existed only as subhuman sex property, and everyone just nodded along. His voice, his cadence and conviction, it didn't matter if you agreed or approved or even believed what he said. There was just something about the guy. Even Dennis Wilson couldn't bring himself to completely sever ties. He introduced Manson to Terry Melcher, the record producer for the Birds, and he even pushed for the Beach Boys to record one of Manson's songs, and they actually did it. But it didn't turn out to be the big break Manson hoped for. They changed the title, rewrote the lyrics, and ditched Charlie's bluesy riffs. Worst of all, they robbed him of the songwriting credit, which meant
0: no royalties from sales. Charlie was pissed. After all, he was born to be a rock star. He was entitled to it, and those fat cat Hollywood bastards stole his dreams out from under him. One day, the world was gonna recognize him for his talent and brilliance. One day, people like Dennis Wilson were gonna eat crow when they saw Charlie Manson's face on the cover of The Rolling Stone. And only a year later, it would be.
1: Charlie took everyone up to Sacramento for a week to get away from it all, but his scorn and resentment were just as infectious among the family as the skin disease Sadie picked up from some guy who'd just gotten out of prison. By the time they got back to Spawn Ranch, Tex was confused, depressed, and doubting. His image of Charlie as a loving, benevolent friend and spiritual guide was starting to crack and peel in
0: places, and he didn't much care for the spiteful, petty asshole he saw lurking beneath. It was late November 1968, and the Beatles had just dropped a brand new, self-titled double LP. As the family gathered around the turntable in the living room to drop the needle, Tex snuck off to the kitchen to call his friend Rich. He just needed a place to crash while he figured things out, just a place to think. As side three, track six, tore through the living room walls, Tex hung up the phone. He'd never have a better chance than he did right then. No one heard the back door slam shut behind him, drowned under the driving crash the chorus, Helter Skelter. Pensive soul searching, it turns out, was kinda boring. Rich
1: worked all day, and there just ain't much to do in LA when you're broke. And then Luella started coming around. She was Rich's ex, a small-time dope dealer Tex had met once or twice at a party. And he fell hard. Within days, he'd moved in with her as friends, lovers, and business partners. Luella was mostly just selling pot to her friends. Maybe a little acid here and there, but together they decided to go big. Within weeks, they were rolling in cash. Tex got himself a respectable haircut, some stylish clothes, and a copy of that new Beatles album. He and Luella learned every
0: word by heart.
1: It was a damn good record.
0: He was happy, truly happy, but Charlie refused to let him go. He was everywhere, in the songs on the radio, in the eyes of total strangers on the streets, in the reflection, in the mirror. It was like an intrusive thought, the kind that creeps into your head while you're driving and makes you wonder, if only for a fleeting moment, what it might be like to steer the car into oncoming traffic. You can shake it off, shut it out, push it back down to whatever fucked up back alley of your brain it slunk out from, but it's still there and it always comes back. No matter how far you run from your problems and your past, you can't run away from who you really are. The girls picked up the phone on the first ring. It felt good to hear their voices, but something was up. They were excited, talking over each other.
1: Everything's changed, Tex. You gotta You've got to come gotta back. Come you gotta come gotta back.
0: Come home. The next day, he packed a bag and hitched a ride to Spawn Ranch. The girls rushed to meet him on the porch and threw themselves into his arms. They got him out of his square Hollywood clothes and into something decent. Then they sat him down to fill him in on the big news. Charlie, it seemed had a brand new bag. Dig this. The Beatles got wind that Jesus
1: had returned to earth somewhere in LA and the White Album is a sign, a message, a signal that it's time for Charlie to start planting the seeds of Helter Skelter. He's the fifth Beatle man, the fifth angel. And once he gets this album out to the world, the Beatles are going to come find him. And us too,
0: cause they're the avenging locust swarm you know.
1: Beatles and locusts are like basically the same thing.
0: It's helter-skelter, man, revolution. Like the White Album is all these messages for Charlie, like secret codes laying everything out, how it's all gonna go down. It's coming down fast. First it'll hit the Piggy neighborhoods the fat cat enclaves like Beverly Hills and Bel Air. The black folks are gonna sneak into Piggy homes and shock the fucking world. Charlie says karma's gonna roll for Blackie, and it's gonna be sheer savage butchery, man. I'm talking mutilation, eviscerations, messages scrawled in blood, unspeakable fucking carnage. And the Whites, they're gonna go nutso, mass hysteria, paranoia, chaos, and whitey being whitey, they're gonna cash in on it, like an excuse to go straight up slaughterhouse on the blacks, thousands dead, a fucking holocaust. But dig this, it's all part of the plan, the dead are just the Uncle Toms, you know, the true black race is hiding out the whole time, waiting for the chance to take the stage and be like, look here, see what you've done to my people, and then bam, <coughs> whites are split down the middle, the left's gonna feel all guilty, and the right won't give a good goddamn, and then <coughs> we got ourselves a civil war that makes the old one look like howdy doody, man, Family's taking sides, parents shooting their own kids, kids slitting their parents' throats. In America and the whole wide world is gonna go up like a fucking match and burn. When the dust comes down,
1: the blacks will pick off whatever whites ain't been cold and take over the whole show. But then there's Charlie and us. We've been hiding out the whole time down under the desert in the bottomless pit, living like kings while the earth is steeped and stewed in its own blood. That shit's in the Bible, man. And we're gonna hang down there and do our thing till our babies have babies and there's a hundred... uh, 144,000! Like a lot, okay? And then, when we get to the bottom, we're gonna go right back to the top of the slide. See what I'm saying? We're gonna go for a goddamn ride. Charlie says Blackie's gonna fuck shit up. They're gonna be waiting for us whites to come run things right. Because we got the smarts, you know? And they're gonna turn to Charlie, Jesus fucking Christ himself. And he's gonna have the whole world in his hands. It's gonna be a fucking gas.
0: It was a lot for Tex to take in. And as you might imagine, he had a few questions, but now just wasn't the time to get into it. He didn't care what crazy trip they were on. He was just happy to be home, surrounded by love, where he belonged. And with a little time and a few dozen tabs of acid, Helter Skelter started to make some sense, at least sort of, in a way. Somewhere between the trips and rants, Charlie managed to line up a recording session with that producer, Terry Melcher. They were stoked, but Melcher never showed. After all, he was hit to Wilson's weird relationship with the family, the mood swings, the drugs, the threats. But to Charlie, this was nothing short of betrayal, treason. Melcher was supposed to be the one, the man who'd make him famous and put everything in motion. But he turned out to be just another Hollywood piggy. And like the Beatles say, side two, track four, what the piggies need is a damn good whackin'.
1: Meanwhile, Tex was trying his best to convince Luella to come join him at the ranch and maybe become part of the family. But she just wasn't sold on the whole supernatural race war thing. And in all fairness, he wasn't all that sure about it himself. Tex started taking regular trips to Hollywood to get away and get some perspective. But Brooding quickly devolved into psychedelic benders that found him hiding in the back of pickup trucks and freaking out the drivers, or scooping up children off the streets and hiding them in the bushes to save them from helter skelter. It was only a matter of time before the pigs cracked down, and on April 23, 1969, Tex Watson was arrested in Van Nuys for public intoxication. Apparently some people got concerned when they saw a full-grown man slithering on the ground like a snake through a crowd of schoolchildren shouting, Beep! Beep! His mugshot from the escapade eventually became the go-to photo for any article about him in the press. If you google image search his name, it's one of the first photos that come up. You'll know which one. It was also the first and only time he got fingerprinted,
0: and that would come back to haunt him in a big way. Back at the ranch, Charlie's sermons, which had always been frequent, long, and kinda hard to follow, were becoming increasingly focused on the themes of fear and death and how they could be wielded as a weapon. He started sending the girls out on what he called creepy crawls, nightly missions of breaking into homes and wealthy neighborhoods and rearranging their belongings while they slept. The idea was to make the piggies wake up afraid and the practice they were getting in the art of breaking and entering didn't hurt either.
1: Night after night, he'd gather them into a circle around an empty chair and tell them to imagine some piggy sitting right there. Imagine his deepest, darkest fears, visualize them and project them like a psychic knife right into the piggy's cold black heart. Charlie was feeding them a steady diet of LSD and it's speculated that he only pretended to take it himself, leaving him grounded enough to be their guide. Not that we've ever done it, of course, but from what we hear, acid has a way of tearing down the ego, one's sense of self, scattering the consciousness into fragments that ebb and flow with the natural pulse of everything around you, erasing the boundary between real and unreal, right and wrong. And when the vibe is right, just about anything can sound like a good idea. Charles Denton Watson was starting to feel like nothing more than a memory, a construct, a fiction.
0: There was only Tex and Charlie, Always, Charlie. On some level, Tex knew this was all just a revenge fantasy. Charlie had been in and out of jail since he was 13 years old. He never had a childhood or a loving family back in Texas, worrying sick about their wayward son and how long it had been since he'd been to church. Charlie Manson was born in hell and grew up in a cage. The world outside was a hostile, foreign land. And after 17 years confined and condemned, the beast had finally risen from the pit to rain holy hell on the damned. Charlie fantasized about building a jail in the sewers where he could be the warden, and the big fat piggies in their starch white shirts would cower in their cells when Warden Charlie's baton came a-clankin' across the bars. Karma's gonna roll. Yes, she is.
1: It was June 1969 when Charlie pulled Tex aside and whispered in his ear,
0: If Blackie don't make his move soon, we'll have to start helter Skelter for him anything can sound like a good idea
1: if the vibe is right
0: case in point
1: one night he and i were waiting in the parking lot of the casino waiting for the right victims when two elderly ladies came out to their car one of them crippled charlie pulled up to block their exit and sent me with a knife to force them into our car i crept forward slowly then suddenly appeared at their window flashing my blade the woman who was driving accelerated violently nearly running me down as she swung around our car and took off down the driveway We spent about 15 minutes chasing them all over the north end of the valley before they finally lost us. Charlie had been cheated out of his pig, but he'd gained something. He'd seen that at least one member of the family had reached the point he'd try
0: to do anything, Charlie asked, even kill. Well, almost anything. Tex and a couple of the girls had an affinity for methamphetamine. It was like a performance-enhancing drug, the opposite of acid, but Charlie hated it and he wouldn't allow it at the ranch thought it was bad for the body, which is kind of funny, all things considered. So Tex smuggled it in and kept it in baby food jars under the porch. He was willing to kill for Manson, but he wasn't willing to give up his speed. If mom was so easily fooled, why not Charlie? Manson was obsessed with dune buggies.
1: He was convinced they were necessary in the quest for the bottomless pit, and he started pushing the family members for cash to pad the buggy fund. Charlie knew all about Luella. There were no secrets among the family, except the crank under the porch, of course, and Tex dutifully called her up. She, of course, refused, but Charlie wouldn't take no for an answer. Tex waited a few days, then called her up again, saying he had a sweet deal lined up for a big haul of grass, too good to pass up. All she had to do was go with him to an apartment complex somewhere in town and front him the cash to make the sale. She reluctantly agreed, but insisted on bringing a friend of hers, a low-level dealer named Bernard Papa Crow.
0: When the three of them pulled into the complex, Crow insisted that Luella stay in the car with him while Tex scored the dope. If he tried anything funny, Crow said he'd hurt her. Bad. Tex smiled wide and played up his draw. No, I always come back for my girl. You can sell damn near anything with a Texan accent. We just sound so dadgum polite when we lie through our teeth. Tex gave him a wave, went upstairs with the cash, and ducked down a corridor to the other side of the building where a family member was waiting with a car and then they floored it back to the ranch. The phone was already ringing. Big Crow might have been bluffing about hurting Luella, but he was royally pissed about getting scammed. He said if they didn't give him back his money now, he'd come down there and kill them all. And this time, it didn't sound like a bluff. The line went dead and Charlie sent Tex up into the hills to hide out while he cleaned up his mess. Tex came down to the ranch the next morning to find out what had gone down. Charlie
1: and another family member, TJ, drove out to Big Crow's apartment. Charlie told Crow he wanted to clear the air and make things right. TJ was supposed to grab the 22 out of Charlie's waistband and shoot Crow dead, but he froze up. So Charlie pulled the gun and pulled the trigger. Crow stood up, grinning. You're crazy, you come at me with an empty- Crow hit the ground with a bullet in the chest and his entourage backed off, hands up. Charlie nicked a buckskin jacket from one of the guys, grabbed TJ, and ran out the door. It was the same jacket he'd be wearing over his handcuffs when the news cameras introduced the world to Charlie Manson for the very first time. Charlie spent the whole day bragging that he'd quote, plugged Blackie. So when news broke of a body turning up somewhere near UCLA, they all assumed it was Crow. The victim had been identified as a member of the Black Panther Party, and Charlie's peacocking mood faded to black. The Panthers were a fearsome presence at the time, armed to the teeth and unforgiving. Paranoia swept through the ranch, and Charlie prepared the family for inevitable retribution. What Manson didn't know was that Bernard Crowe wasn't a Black Panther, and he wasn't even dead. His boys
0: took him to the hospital, and he recovered just fine. He never even called the cops. In an acid-fueled frenzy, Tex and Charlie went to the Army Surplus Store to buy survival gear and knives, lots and lots of knives. On the way back, they got pulled over by the LAPD, The cops searched the car and found stacks of cash under a bag of blades, so they detained them for questioning for a few hours before letting them go, but they knew something was up. Goddamn hippie burnouts don't have that kind of cash just lying around on the floorboards. A few days later, the LAPD raided Spawn Ranch, but Manson was more than prepared. Most of the family was already camping out in the hills, hiding from the imaginary Black Panther vengeance, and Charlie had hired a biker gang the straight Satans, to work security around the ranch. The Satans tipped off the family via walkie-talkie, and the cops left the ranch empty-handed. But paranoia came by no doom buggies, so the family got to work in any and every way they knew how. Drugs and theft. One of the girls, Katie, even jacked and chopped a Volkswagen right off the dealership lot and dumped the shell in a ravine.
1: But it was never enough. Charlie was convinced that an acquaintance of theirs, a musician and teacher named Gary Hinman, had a sizable stash of cash that was ripe for the taking. You know, like a teacher does. So on July 25th, 1969, Charlie sent three family members, Sadie, Bobby, and Mary, to pay Gary a visit and quote, Lay so much fear on him, he'll give you everything he has. Tex didn't find out what happened till they got back days later, and even then he had to coax the details out of the girls where he could, as far as he could piece it together. This is what went down.
0: The trio paid a friendly visit to Gary's place and demanded cash, but he swore he didn't have any. There was some back and forth, then Bobby lost his cool and pulled a gun and smacked Gary across the face with the barrel. He was bleeding, crying and swearing to Christ there wasn't any money. So Bobby tied him up and called the ranch.
1: He's not cooperating, Charlie. What do we do?
0: Charlie borrowed a sword from one of the straight Satans and drove out to the house. But Gary told him the same thing he told the others. There just isn't any money. So Charlie chopped off a piece of Gary's ear, stole a set of bagpipes off a shelf, and drove back to the ranch. Mary
1: stitched up the ear with some dental floss and Gary begged them to just let him go. Please, just go. Gary was a peacenik, a new age spiritual type. He didn't believe in violence. A lot of good that did him. They spent the next day watching him in shifts, beating him, demanding cash that wasn't there. Gary did everything he could to comply. He even signed over the pink slip for his car, but he didn't have anything else to give. The torture went on for another whole day before Bobby finally decided Gary was telling the truth. Back at the ranch, Charlie picked up the phone and said,
0: you know what to do.
1: Bobby hung up, pulled out his knife, and plunged it deep into Gary's chest. Pulled it out, and did it again. Then the three of them took turns holding a pillow over his face until Gary Hinman suffocated to death with prayer beads clenched in his fist, muttering a Buddhist chant for
0: peace through the blood in his throat. Bobby dipped his fingers in the blood and scrawled political piggy on the wall, along with a crude attempt at a paw print, hoping the cops would pin the death on the Black Panthers. Then he hightailed it back to the ranch. He went back two days later to see if anyone had found the body. They hadn't and he bragged to anyone in earshot that he could hear the maggots crunching inside the corpse. The next morning, he left for a drive up the coast and managed to get himself busted by the pigs. They found him passed out on the side of the road in Gary's stolen car, wearing the same clothes he'd worn to Gary's house with the knife stashed in the trunk, both still crusted in Gary's blood. It was August 6th, 1969, and Bobby Buselli was locked up in LA County facing charges of first-degree murder.
1: Charlie told everyone to keep quiet and lay low, and he disappeared for a couple days to figure things out. The family needed a plan. He needed a way to misdirect the cops, to divert their attention to something else. Something so similar to what Bobby had done, the piggies would think they'd botch things, that they'd locked up the wrong guy. It wasn't loyalty, it was self-preservation. He had to do something before the pigs made Bobby squeal. Charlie showed back up at the ranch on August 8th and called a family meeting to break the big news.
0: Now is the time for helter-skelter.
1: The sun was sinking down behind the hills, and Tex was coming down from some acid when Charlie took him out for a walk. I got a
0: favor I want you to do for me tonight, but it'll take a lot of nerve to do it. Whatever you want, Charlie. He leaned against one of the cars, a strange look in his dark eyes. Strange even for him. He brought up Terry Melcher, the cat who'd burned him on the record deal. Apparently he had a house out on Cielo Drive.
1: But he didn't even live there anymore.
0: I want you to take a couple of the girls and go down there, Charlie said, and totally destroy everyone in that house, as gruesome as you can.
1: Melcher had moved to Malibu months ago. He'd been renting the house out to some big shot movie director, Roman
0: Polanski, a total pig for sure, but a stranger. Take some rope and some of the good knives. Whoever's in there, I want you to kill them all. Make it a real nice murder, just as bad as you've ever seen. Pull out their eyes and hang them on the mirrors. And get all their money. Tex nodded along and tried to
1: focus on the acid crackling through his jaw and sliding off his spine back into the ether.
0: He tried not to think. Write something on the wall with the blood. Like helter-skelter. Rise. I can't remember all that. That's
1: okay. The girls will know what to write. Manson pressed a gun into his hands and headed up to the house to get the girls. The acid couldn't dull the edges of what was happening, what was about to happen. Tonight he was gonna become a murderer. Tex ran up to the porch and dug out his baby food jar of speed, blew a few rails, took a deep breath, and went to fetch some rope. They all met up at the car. Sadie, Katie, and Linda walked up barefoot, which seemed a little impractical to him. Tex opted for cowboy boots. He started up the engine and the girls piled into the back, and Charlie leaned into the open window. Remember to leave a sign. Something witchy. Tex set the gas and watched in the rear view as Charlie, waving goodbye, disappeared into
0: the darkness. They kept getting turned around and lost, and it didn't help that everyone was a bundle of nerves ready to snap and a, a pothole away from ralphing out the car window. It was around midnight when they finally pulled up to 10050 Cielo Drive. Tex stopped at the gate, shimmied up the telephone pole, and cut the line then parked the car on the street. As they cleared the fence, headlights shined in the driveway, and as the driver rolled down the window to press the gate button, Tex appeared from the shadows, gun in one hand and knife in the other. Behind the wheel, he saw a teenage boy, his face twisted and swollen in terror, or maybe it was just the acid.
1: Please, uh, please don't hurt me. Uh, I'm your friend, I won't. I won't tell.
0: The boy raised his hands to shield his face, so Tex slashed his arm with the knife, then shot him four times until he slumped over silent in the seat. He didn't know at the time that the kid had a name, Stephen Parent. He didn't care. Tex cut the motor and pushed the car off the drive, out of sight from the road. As far as he could tell, no one inside the house heard the shots. Everything was locked up tight, except one small window in the entryway that was cracked open a few inches. Tex told Linda to go back to the gate and stand watch. Katie followed behind her. He cut through the screen, crawled inside, and opened the front door for Sadie. The house was quiet and
1: still. A big man was asleep on the couch in the living room, draped in an American flag. Sadie disappeared down the hallway to check the rooms. The big man stirred and mumbled. What time is it? Tex kicked him in the head with his boot. Who are you? What do you, what do you want? I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's business.
0: Katie appeared from outside and Sadie returned from the hallway with a dark-haired woman in a long white nightgown. Another word and you're dead. Where's the fucking money? The big man nodded toward a nearby desk. Katie held a knife on him as Sadie again disappeared down the hallway. She returned this time with a square-looking dude and a pretty blonde woman in her underwear. Eight months pregnant but the speed can blur your vision, skew the angles, make spots dance in the corner of your eyes, or maybe you just don't see the belly. Maybe you're too focused on the task at hand, or maybe you just lie when you get caught. Tex grabbed her arm and dragged her into the living room. He had enough lucidity to use his elbow to switch off the hallway light so he wouldn't leave any fingerprints, but he still didn't notice she was pregnant. The square was whining that Tex was being too rough with her so he told Sadie to tie the big man's hands with a towel while he tied the square's hands and feet, pushed him down into a chair, then wrapped the rope around his neck. The ceiling had exposed rafters running the length of the room, so he slung the rope over one and tied the other end to the pretty woman's neck. The square struggled in the chair, shouting at him to be careful with her. She was pregnant. I told you one more word and you're dead. The speed gives you tunnel vision, it makes you jumpy, skittish, impulsive, so he pointed the 22 and he squeezed. The pretty woman screamed, and the man fell onto the rug, groaning, bleeding, but alive. Sadie searched the house for cash, and came back with 70 bucks. You mean that's all you've got? How much do you want? We want thousands. There's no money in the house, but we can get more, we just need time. You know I'm not kidding. Yes, I I know. The square was making too much noise, so Tex kicked him in the face till his eye socket cracked. Then he kneeled down and stabbed him. What are you going to do with us? You're all going to die. The big man was fighting against his bonds. Kill him!
1: Sadie came at him with the knife, but he managed to drag her to the ground. She flailed and stabbed his legs once, twice, again, until she lost the knife in the couch cushions and he wrestled her to the ground. Tex didn't have a clear shot without the risk of hitting Sadie, so he jumped into the melee and beat him with the butt of his gun so hard, a piece of the grip broke off on his skull. But the big man, somehow, made a break for the door, dragging Tex and Sadie by the rope all the way to the front porch. Help me! god, help me! Tex stabbed him again, 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 then shot him twice, and the man finally slumped to the ground and laid still. Linda was standing in the front yard watching,
0: petrified. Screaming! Make it stop. It's too late. The woman in the nightgown, streaked in blood, made a mad dash across the lawn. Someone's getting away. Katie tackled her to the ground and pinned her wrist. She looked up at Tex and Katie, calm, emotionless, and resigned. I give up. You've got me.
1: Tex didn't know at the time that she had a name. Abigail Folger. He stabbed her 28 times and felt nothing but the warm, sticky blood between his fingers. He looked over his shoulder and saw the big man had somehow dragged himself off the porch and halfway across the lawn. That mother was strong. Tex ran over there and pushed his face into the dirt. He raised the knife and brought it down. Again, 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 until he lost sight of his hand beneath the blood. He didn't know the man
0: had a name.
1: Wojciech Frakowski. The coroner's report would say he was stabbed a total of 51 times.
0: Tex staggered to his feet and headed back to the house with Katie close on his heels. They found Sadie sitting on the couch, clutching the pretty woman while she sobbed, sniffed, and begged. The acid had snapped, crackled, and gone, but the speed was still cranking out the hits. And it wasn't until the woman begged to have her baby before they killed her that Tex finally noticed she was pregnant. He didn't know at the time that this woman had a name, a famous one, Sharon Tate, but he wanted to know that. For a moment right then, he cared, but as fast as things snapped into focus, they slid back into a blur. Sadie just sat there, frozen, so Tex lunged with the knife. Mother. Again. Mother. Again. Mother. Tex stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times before she finally stopped moving, and everything went quiet. So quiet, they couldn't help but whisper. Are
1: they all dead? Yes. Write something. Write something that'll shock the world.
0: She picked up the towel and dipped it in the thick pool of red blooming out from Tate's pregnant belly and scrawled the word pig on the front door of the house. They gathered the weapons and ran back to the car where Linda was waiting with the engine on, a ghastly, pale, trembling, gasping mess, clenching the wheels so tight her fingers looked like they might snap off at the knuckle. Drive! They blew past the gate and disappeared into the death-like quiet of Cielo Drive. They tossed the weapons and bloody clothes as they drove off cliff sides into a ravine, Then they stopped at a gas station, checked themselves for blood, and bought gas with the money they'd stolen.
1: Charlie was waiting for them on the fake movie set boardwalk when they got back to the ranch. And
0: what are you doing home so early?
1: They recounted what happened, real messy, just like you asked.
0: Do you have any remorse? No. Okay. Go to sleep and don't tell anyone.
1: He pulled Tex aside as the girls skipped back to the house.
0: Was it really helter skelter?
1: Yeah. It was was sure helter-skelter.
0: Sharon Tate's neighbors would later admit they'd heard gunshots and screams that night, but not one of them came to investigate, called to check, or even called the police. The piggies did nothing, not even to save their own.
1: The next day, Tex avoided everyone. He just snorted speed and worked on the dune buggies, taking refuge in the quiet of menial work. That night, Charlie called another family meeting. There was too much panic at the Tate house. Tonight, tonight would be different. Tex dropped a tab of acid, then he and Sadie snuck off to rail enough crank to maybe make this all okay. They piled into the car and Charlie handed Tex a 45. Tonight, he'd show them how it was done. They stopped at a house in Pasadena first. Charlie and Tex peeked through the windows, but Charlie called it off when he saw photos of children on the walls. He didn't want to kill any kids, not yet anyways. The next stop was no good either. Too close to the neighbors.
0: Someone might hear the screams.
1: Next up was a church. Charlie wanted to kill the preacher bad, but it was locked up tight. He nixed the next house too. Finally, Charlie gave Tex some directions. Specific directions. Like maybe he had a destination in mind all along. They pulled onto Waverly Drive and Tex recognized one of the houses from some acid party, but Charlie insisted it wasn't the target. 3301. That's the spot place they'd never been. People they
0: didn't know. Pigs, though, right? Through the window, Tex and Charlie saw a heavyset man asleep on the couch with a newspaper draped over his face. The back door was unlocked, so they quietly pushed it open and found a big dog waiting on the other side. Maybe the dog was just a bit too friendly, or maybe Texans just have a way with dogs, but it wagged its tail and licked Tex's hand, nuzzling in for some pets as they shut the door behind them. Charlie pulled the 45, and Tex brandished a bayonet he'd picked up at the army surplus store. They crept over the couch and Charlie pushed the muzzle of the gun into the man's chest. As he brushed the paper off his face and his predicament sunk into his dilated eyes, Tex had a sour flash of deja vu. Who are you? What do you want? Or maybe it was just the acid crackling through his bones and radiating out through his nerves.
1: Tex watched the man's eyes hike up the barrel to meet Charlie's crooked smile.
0: We're not gonna hurt you. Just relax. Don't be afraid.
1: How can I help being afraid when you've got a gun pointed at me?
0: It's okay. I'm your friend. We don't want anything but money. Charlie tore off the man's leather necklace and Tex
1: used it to bind his hands. Charlie disappeared down the hall and came back a few seconds later with a woman in a blue nightgown, gun pressed to the back of her head. Don't worry. It's just a simple robbery. He sat her down next to her husband's feet. Look. We'll give you anything you want. Just tell us. Do you have any cash? There was only a few bucks in the man's leather wallet. I can get you more. Just let me take you to the store and you can get as much as you want. No, we just want what's here. Charlie took the woman back to the bedroom, put a pillowcase over her head, wrapped the cord of a bedside lamp around her neck to hold it in place, then did the same to her husband. Once the cord was wrapped good and tight, Charlie pocketed the gun and made his way to the front door.
0: Make sure the girls get to do some of it. He said over his shoulder. Both of them. A few minutes later, Katie and Leslie appeared in the kitchen. Did he say to kill him? Tex asked, whispering. They nodded. But acid makes it kind of hard to whisper.
1: You're going to kill us, aren't
0: you? Katie started digging through the drawers for knives. Tex walked over to the sofa and straddled the man. He didn't know the man had a name, Leno LaBianca, and he stabbed him in the throat with a bayonet. The man managed to scream through the blood gushing out of the hole in his neck.
1: Don't stab me anymore.
0: Tex watched the bayonet sink into the man's chest and re-emerge again, like a magic trick. Here I am, and then- I'm dead, I'm dead. Leno said, through the deep red puddle on the pillowcase where his mouth should be. What are you doing to my husband? Tex
1: had nearly forgotten about her. He and the girls rushed into the bedroom where they found the woman in a corner, pillowcase still covering her face obscuring her humanity in a way that suited the acid just fine. The cord was still tied around her throat, and she was blindly swinging the lamp around in a broad arc. But the bayonet had a range, and soon found purchase between her ribs. Tex thrusted in and out, like magic. Again, again, until she was dead. And then again, and again. Her name was Rosemary LaBianca, and Tex didn't give a good goddamn.
0: He's still alive.
1: He left the woman in a pool of gore and scrambled into the living room, where the speed and acid throbbed and vibed together, Charlie's voice replaying like a chorus, ricocheting around his skull and ripping through his brain.
0: Make it as gruesome
1: as you can. He got on top of the man and stabbed him twelve times before he finally went still. He dragged the tip of the bayonet down to the man's stomach and carved war into the soft belly flesh. Tex washed the blood off his hands in the kitchen sink while Katie pulled an ivory-handled fork from one of the drawers. She stabbed the man's corpse 14 times and left the fork jutting out of his stomach. She went back to the kitchen and grabbed a steak knife, then buried it halfway through his neck like she was planting a flag.
0: Tex went back to the bedroom with Leslie. Charlie wanted the girls to get some too, and it wasn't too late. Leslie was scared. She didn't want to. But Tex pressed the bayonet into her hand and let Charlie... The never-ending intrusive thought, do the rest. Leslie swallowed her fear and doubt and stabbed the woman's corpse 16 times. Their search for cash turned up nothing but a bag of coins. Leslie wrote rise and death to pigs on the walls in blood. Katie misspelled helter-skelter on the refrigerator door. They wiped everything down for prints, grabbed some milk and cheese from the fridge, and gave the dog a pet on the way out. According to texts, the LaBianca's dog had followed them through the house the entire time, wagging its tail and just happy to make new friends. The shock and savagery of the murders threw Hollywood into
1: a state of panic. Frank Sinatra was rumored to be in hiding, and Mia Farrow was afraid she might be next. The going rate for guard dogs spiked eightfold, and a Beverly Hills sporting goods store reportedly sold 200 guns in just two days. Fear had fallen on the City of Angels, and the piggies were running scared. The wall-to-wall media coverage was a non-stop deluge of wild speculation and tabloid trash. Even Time Magazine exaggerated the lurid details to the level of urban legend. But for all the glossy reams of torture porn and conspiracy theories flying off the newsstands, nobody mentioned anything about a Beatles-themed race war. Helter Skelter, it seemed, wasn't coming down fast enough and Charlie wasn't a man known for his patience. He was never gonna stop. He'd make them keep killing night after night until one of the races made a move, and Tex didn't know how much more he could take.
0: Rich called the ranch the next day to tell Tex that his mom had called looking for him. She hadn't heard from her son in six months, and she was even more worried than usual, especially with these satanic killers on the loose out there. Tex's heart dropped to his boots. I wasn't sure which was truly worse. The cops having him dead to rights on multiple homicide? Or them telling his mom and dad? Charlie told him to call her back and find out what's happening, but he couldn't bring himself to pick up the phone, so he lied. He told Charlie the FBI came to his parents' house looking for him, and he had to hide out somewhere, lay low until the heat was off. Charlie bought it, and within a couple of days, they and a handful of trusted family members loaded up the truck and rode out to Death Valley. I sometimes wonder, Tex wrote,
1: how many more deaths there might have been if it hadn't been
0: for that phone call from Texas. They spent days out in the desert, rationing water and crawling through abandoned mine shafts, hoping to find the entrance to the pit. At night, they dropped acid and watched the campfire pulse and sink with their every breath, sparks and embers dancing on the blades of knives, afraid of nothing and no one, everyone and everything.
1: When supplies started running low, Charlie sent Tex and the underage family members out to an isolated, derelict ranch in Death Valley and told them to keep quiet and stay put until things cooled off. It was lonely, scary, and more than a little uncomfortable. And after a couple days of playing creepy babysitter, Tex needed a night out. He hitched 16 hours to LA and just wandered around, laughing at the ridiculous tabloid headlines about the so-called devil-worshipping cult of murderers that was terrorizing the city. He'd never been to a killer black magic sex orgy, but what the hell, sounds kind of fun. The media didn't know shit, but still, seeing all that button-down pearl clutching got him thinking about his family back home. For a second there, he considered calling his parents, asking for a plane ticket back to Texas, but home would be the first place the cops would come looking.
0: As Tex was hitching back to the desert hideout, the LAPD was descending on Spawn Ranch. They'd found the gutted Volkswagen Katie left in the ravine and executed an arrest warrant on Charlie and some of the girls for GTA. But the pigs botched the paperwork and had to let everyone go the next day. Charlie knew there was no way they'd get that lucky again. It was time to cash in their chips before the dice went cold. He ordered Tex and the family to pack up the whole operation and move it gun by gun, buggy by buggy, out to yet another abandoned ranch he'd found somewhere in the desert. They kept watch from the hills all night, every night for two weeks, National Park rangers were combing the desert looking for them, and worse, they'd run out of acid.
1: That night, Charlie handed Tex a shotgun.
0: Get up to the attic and wait. When those two rangers come, kill them.
1: Charlie peeled out and disappeared in a cloud of dust, and Tex did as he was told, like he always did. Always had, and always swore he'd never do.
0: He woke up the next morning cradling the gun. Parched, sore, and slowly piecing together where he was and what he'd been reduced to. He hadn't been this sober in God knows how long, and a rush of feelings he'd long since forgotten how to feel flooded back all at once into his throbbing skull. Regret, remorse, reality. Suddenly, I knew the world wasn't gonna end. Suddenly, I was
1: tired and hungry. Suddenly, I didn't care what Charlie had told me to do. All I knew was that I
0: wouldn't kill anyone. Not again. He tossed the gun, bolted down the stairs, and tore off in one of the cars. If he could make it to Ballarat, the closest town, he'd survive, at least until Charlie caught up to him.
1: Two-thirds of the way there, the car sputtered and lurched to a stop. He was out of gas and out of water, and the blistering heat of the desert sun cooked flesh like hellfire. There was no turning back. He was hoofing it to Ballarat, to freedom, or to whatever ditch he'd die in when the thirst finally cut him down.
0: The buzzards were already circling the skies when Tex caught sight of a jeep on the horizon and waved it down. It was an old man headed out LA way, and he said Tex was welcome to hitch along. The ride very likely saved his life. When they got downtown, Tex thanked the man, stumbled up to the first payphone he saw, and dropped a dime. Mom, I want to go home. She wired him enough money for fresh clothes, a shower, a haircut, and a plane ticket. By 5 a.m., he was rushing into his sister's arms in the terminal at Dallas Love Field. She kissed his cheek, cradled his face, and said, quote, that haircut is still too long for Texas. She took his hand and dragged him to the airport shops, where she told the barber on duty, quote, make him look like a boy this time. It was Texas all right. He was finally home. The sun was coming up as they pulled into their parents' house,
1: and Tex was crashing hard off the drugs, exhaustion, and. Charlie, and the withdrawal was hell. He spent the first few days watching TV in the dark, lying on the couch, barely able to eat, and refusing to speak to his worried parents except to scream at them to please just shut the hell up. It wasn't them, but it was in a way, definitely. But not really,
0: not at all. He screamed into pillows, slapped himself in the face. Nothing made sense anymore, and it wouldn't go away. Was Charlie right? He wrote, Were these people I call my parents
1: really pigs? Or was everything my parents and their simple, honest lives represented the
0: real truth? Once he started feeling a little better, a little more human, he told his parents he needed to go back to LA to collect insurance money, he said. They drove him out to the airport, where he hopped on a plane to Mexico and wandered around just trying to figure it all out. Then it was a cheap motel in Venice Beach, then passing out under a beach canoe somewhere in Hawaii. Then back to LA, where he bought some acid and a cassette of Abbey Road to help keep himself entertained on the long walk through the desert. Back to Charlie. About halfway through the trip, or trips, it occurred to him just what the hell he was doing. He'd abandoned his post, disobeyed Charlie, betrayed the family. He was a traitor, a deserter. If he went back, Charlie would kill him right there on the spot. Just as bad as you've ever seen. He spun
1: on the heels of his ragged boots and hiked fast towards the city. After a few hours or maybe a few minutes, who knew, he spotted the trailer home of an old prospector he'd met a few times before, a man named Tex. It was 2am but the light was on, so he staggered up and knocked. Despite the hour, the elder Tex seemed glad to see him. He said Charlie and the others had gone and gotten themselves arrested again, but he wasn't sure why. Seemed real serious though, arson maybe. Yeah, you'd better get out of the area, quick as you can," he said, grabbing his boots. The old man helped him into his truck and drove him all the way out to Ridgecrest, where Tex thanked him profusely and went looking for a payphone. This time, his parents made him promise he'd stay for good and mean it. He did, and he would, at least until that promise was no longer his to keep.
0: He spent November of 1969 reacclimating to life in Texas, right back where he started working at his father's store, dodging questions from his family and lying. And then one day, he came home to find his dad and uncle waiting for him. Their faces straining to hold composure over the contortions of pain, disappointment, and anger. And he knew the running was finally over.
1: Charles, you know anything about a murder in California?
0: He denied it flatly and robotically and walked right past them into the kitchen where his mother was slaving over dinner, like she always was.
1: You know what? They're trying to get me for some
0: kind of murder out in California. It can't be so, Charles. Did, did you have a fight, maybe, and the, and the boy could have died after you left or something? When he looked her in the eyes, suddenly God, Santa, Charlie, nothing and no one meant a damn thing, and they never did. She was his mother. I didn't
1: kill anybody.
0: And, lying never felt so fucking wrong.
1: He flushed his stash of weed and acid down the toilet and put on his best church clothes. The family piled into the car for a trip up to McKinney to have a chat with the Collin County Sheriff, who happened to be his second cousin. When they arrived at the jail, his cousin told them that he was under strict orders to hold Charles as a wanted and dangerous man.
0: I think we'll be able to clear all this up quick enough, he said, smiling. We know for sure you didn't commit no murder. But the rest of the
1: world wasn't so easily convinced. The media descended like buzzards on blood, swarming the jail in shifts, day and night, and interviewing anyone who didn't recoil from the mic shoved in their face. In a lot of ways, Texas itself became the story behind the story. Six years after the assassination of a president, that backwater state was making headlines again, and the world wanted answers. They wanted to know how a quaint, Norman Rockwell town like Copeville could possibly breed such horror, and just how much more of it Texas might be harboring.
0: The nonstop media coverage treated his family like camera fodder, collateral damage in the war for primetime ratings. Within days, his father had painted over the Watson family name on the storefront that had taken him a lifetime to build. They, his own family, had become the final victims of the killer they called Tex Watson. The media were willing accomplices in their suffering, but that didn't matter. He was the one who held the knife but they stood by him despite it all and hired a friend of the family, Bill Boyd, to handle his case. Long before the Texas hammer and the strong arm of the law became fixtures of rabbit-eared daytime TV, Bill Boyd was the quintessential Texan defense attorney, and they were lucky to have him. The state of California had just issued an arrest warrant and a demand for the immediate extradition of Charles Denton Watson on seven counts of first-degree murder. Tex had maintained his innocence to everyone up to that point, but once he sat down with the lawyer in private, He broke down.
1: There was one thing that happened in California, he told him. I was uh, sort of involved in the killings. We're going to need to talk, Boyd replied. A lot. Boyd was a staunch believer that every American, guilty or not, deserved a fair trial. And he fought the extradition tooth and nail. He kept appealing, and each denial bought Tex
0: two more months in Texas. Stalling for time gave them a chance to see what the other family members would cop to at their trial and sure enough, Sadie came through. She relished all the attention she was getting and gleefully claimed sole credit for killing Sharon Tate, even bragging that she tasted her blood. The confession struck one murder off Tex's rap sheet and distracted the cameras, for a little while at least. The longer he
1: kept me in Texas,
0: Tex wrote, the longer it would be before I had to face whatever was coming. He wasn't exactly uncomfortable during his stay in county, Tex denies getting special treatment in jail, but having a cousin in the sheriff's office probably didn't hurt. You know, I'm the boy's second cousin, the sheriff told reporters.
1: His mother's daddy's my daddy's brother, but I don't think they've ever established that Charles was in the Tate house or that other place either. And this boy is raised in the church house. Well, his mother and dad are the finest people you'd ever meet. It's awful hard for people around here to think he'd ever done the stuff he'd been accused of doing.
0: He's a good boy. We're happy to say neither of us has ever seen the inside of the Collin County Jail, knock on wood. But we're willing to bet most inmates don't get to keep their TV, radio, Walkman, and Beatles tapes in their own private cells. Still, there was more to it than just having kin in high places. Damn near everyone, his family, the jailers, the locals, and folks all over the state, were convinced he was innocent. There just
1: wasn't any way a good old hometown boy like Charles Watson... High school football star, honor student, handsome, polite, God-fearing kid with a bright future ahead of him, would ever, could ever do the things they said he'd done. They. Those people. The condescending, big city, coastal elite with their Hollywood millions and ivory towers, they think they know it all. Those commie codlin, race-mixing, drugged-out hippies in their godless pinko sex parties. Those Californians. They got the wrong guy, but they can't admit it. They probably set the whole thing up. One of their own devil-loving sissy freaks made a mess of things, and they go and pin it on a red-blooded Texan boy who loves his mama, God, and the U.S. of A.
0: Even if they did think he was guilty, that wasn't the point. For a lot of Texans, it was a matter of principle. It wasn't about justice for the victims or punishment for the killers. It was about telling liberal America to sit on it and spin. But even Texan indignation ain't got nothing on a mother's
1: love. Tex confessed to her multiple times, screaming in her face, spitting vile, lurid details of his crimes through the prison bars, trying to hurt her, trying to make her accept a reality, to make her see the blood on his hands, but she couldn't. All she could see was her little boy, her Charles, and no matter how often or how badly he broke her heart, she'd never give up on him.
0: And his dad, for his part, held the line against the press.
1: His mother raised him right, he said. All this sluff they're saying about him, I don't understand. It's just a bunch of lies, and he ain't no hippie.
0: Manson and the girls sent Tex letters in jail, dark, cryptic ramblings about helter-skelter and pages of delusional nonsense. Charlie Manson was 1,400 miles away, locked up and headed for trial. But not even that was enough to keep him from burrowing back into Tex's brain and triggering torturous acid flashbacks that kept him up at night or haunting his dreams till he woke up screaming. Boyd's fight against extradition went on for another nine months and made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. He argued that the entire state of California was too biased and prejudiced to give Charles Denton Watson a fair trial. Vince Bugliosi, prosecutor and author of the book Helter Skelter, said at the time,
1: The condition of the judicial system in Texas is nothing short of shameful. It's calculated to frustrate the due administration of justice. Shameful isn't strong enough, it's disgraceful
0: and the Supreme Court agreed. In September of 1970, he was transferred to a cell in an LA prison where one of the family members was housed on the floor above, constantly screaming down at his so-called brother to keep hope alive.
1: Coming down soon. I began tasting the reality of what I'd actually done in those two nights of blood, Tex wrote. Suddenly they were not nameless, impersonal things, not pigs. They were terrified men and women who had begged to be allowed to live and I battered and stabbed and shot the life out of them without mercy."
0: He threw his body into the prison bars, screaming wildly, refusing to eat. It wasn't until he'd lost 50 pounds to starvation that they finally transferred him to the hospital ward, but they restrained his limbs and forced a feeding tube down his nose, but he couldn't hold it down. He lay there writhing and vomiting, struggling not to drown in his own bile and blood. The court sent three different psychiatrists to evaluate him, and each one reached the same conclusion the prisoner was unable to speak. He was regressing to a fetal state, and without intervention, he was going to die. The prisoner was incapable of standing trial. Charles Denton Watson, they said, was insane.
1: He was committed to Atascadero State Hospital for evaluation on Halloween Day, 1971, and as the prison bus roared past the bright orange sea of pumpkin fields, bittersweet waves of nostalgia swept over him. And he knew at that moment that for the next 90 days, if not the next 90 years, this was the closest to happy he was ever going to feel. Once he'd regained enough strength to go from the tube to spoon feeding, they transferred him to a tiny room with nothing but a mattress on the floor and a hole in the ground for a toilet. And then the interrogations began.
0: Whether any of this is true, we'll likely never know. But what Tex describes is nothing less than state-sanctioned physical and psychological torture. After three weeks of the so-called interrogations, he blurted out that Charlie had programmed him to kill everyone on any day, even you. It was the truth, but the doctor didn't take it for the rhetorical example Tex claims it was. He turned to the orderlies and shouted,
1: He just threatened to kill me! You hurt him!
0: Whether it was genuine fear for his safety or the excuse he'd been waiting for, we'll never know but the orderly swooped in, stripped text down to his socks and underwear, and threw him back into his cold, empty cell with nothing but a thin blanket to sleep on.
1: My strongest memory of the place,
0: he wrote, is shivering in the dark. The hospital staff was convinced that it was all an act, that he was starving himself to the brink of death so he might look too sick for trial. He claimed some of the orderlies dragged him into an empty room, shoved a piece of beef in his face, and when he refused to eat it, they beat him until the world went black. He awoke on a gurney, naked except for an oxygen mask, while the orderlies searched his body for incriminating bruises. The hospital
1: psychiatrist would later tell the court that the marks were a normal part of what he called wrestling therapy to help him deal with his aggression. Tex claims he wasn't the only victim of what he called therapeutic beatings. He said it happened to patients all the time. At a Tascadero State Hospital, it was standard practice. Once his weight was back up to 128, they bust him to LA County Jail, and a few days later, he got a visit from some members of the so-called family. They had ragged X's freshly carved into their foreheads. They said it was an act of solidarity. The court had allowed Manson to act as his own attorney, but after he lunged at the judge and threatened to cut his head off while the girls chanted in Latin, they decided, yeah, maybe not. So he carved an X into his forehead in protest claiming he'd been, quote, Ixed out of society by establishment. Rumor has it, the judge started packing a revolver under his robes. After the visit, Tex told the jailers he never wanted to see the family again.
0: The trial was, for lack of a better term, a shitshow. Charlie and the family made themselves a constant spectacle, not exactly helping their case. The tabloids ran wild, and even President Nixon weighed in preemptively declaring Manson's guilt before the verdict was even in, nearly causing a mistrial and defying all established norms without precedent and without rival, until, well, now. On March 29, 1971, Charles Manson, Susan Sadie Atkins, Leslie Cassabian, and Patricia Katie Krenwinkel were found guilty of first-degree murder. Charlie had never personally killed anyone, but the jury decided he had so much psychological control over the family that through them, he effectively held the knives. There wasn't any use speculating about the sentencing phase. In California, the punishment for first-degree murder was stark and clear. Death by gas chamber.
1: A handful of family members were holding constant vigil outside the courthouse for days, waiting for the verdict. And when it finally came down, they stared wide-eyed into the camera lens and spoke directly to all the piggies of the world.
0: Death, death! That's what you're all gonna get. On May 10th, 1971, Charles Denton Watson pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyer was convinced he could get the charge reduced to second-degree murder if not get him fully acquitted via hospitalization. Tech spent the summer under intense psychiatric evaluation, reading the Bible whenever he was left to himself. His whole life, he'd been searching for something to fill that deep, dark emptiness inside him, and for a while, He truly believed Charlie Manson was the missing piece that could make him whole. But as he stared down the gas chamber, he saw the light at the end of death row.
1: My horrors were part of a larger horror, a whole world gone wrong, that in no way took away my responsibility for what I'd done, what I'd allowed myself to become, but it explained why. When I'd opened myself to whatever was around me in this broken world, what flooded the emptiness inside me was demonic and deadly. I was barely human anymore. God could heal what I'd done to myself. There could be light, even in my darkness.
0: And Charles Denton Watson knew in his heart he had to go all in. His mom attended every day of the trial, suffering in anguish and horror as the facts, one after another, undeniable and damning, were laid bare for all to see. But her love, like God's, was boundless. When she walked up to the defense table to hug her son, he recoiled away. He was trying selfishly to spare himself the emotional pain, so she instead, selflessly, shouldered it all for the both of them. She'd use the family's meager savings to rent a tiny apartment halfway between the courthouse and the closest Methodist church, walking every day to the trial proceedings and every Sunday to service. And at both places, she found herself rejected, scorned, and turned away. She visited him in jail at every opportunity, offering her support, encouragement, and love, but Tex barely spoke to her. He just pushed her away. Before long, she started wearing dark sunglasses to hide her tears. The pastor at the church snubbed her just the same, wanting nothing to do with the mother of a murderer. And we gotta admit, we teared up a little when we read her meek, humble, and heartbreakingly Texan response to the preacher's callousness.
1: Well, I guess city Methodists just aren't like the country Methodists back home.
0: She even took the stand as a character witness, pleading with the judge, the jury, and the American people to spare this killer that stood before them, because somewhere inside this monster beat the heart of the son she loved more than life itself. But they, those people, refused to forgive. The media buzzards had long since torn apart the all-American Norman Rockwell facade and left the public perception of Texas and all it wrought out to bleach in the Death Valley sun.
1: Sensing that it was a losing battle, his lawyer tried at the last minute to pin everything on Linda as the real mastermind, the real
0: killer, saying, quote, While Charles Denton Watson was in high school back in Texas playing football, what was Linda Kasabian doing? She was going from commune to commune, traveling from man to man, living off boyfriends, shooting speed, selling drugs, and just living by her wits. And honestly, if the trial had
1: been held in Texas, it might have worked but Charles Watson was a long way from home.
0: On October 12, 1971, he was found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. It only took two and a half hours for the jury to conclude that he was perfectly sane, that he knew good and well the difference between right and wrong. And nine days later, they sentenced him to die at the hands of the state in front of an audience as he choked to death on poison gas.
1: Tex was led past his sobbing mother and father, out of the courtroom and into a cell at San Quentin's death row with Charlie. And together, alone, they waited to die. But on February 18, 1972, the California Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional and they with the rest of the family were transferred into general population. It was then that Tex recognized for the first time that his relationship with God was one-sided. It was all about what he got not what he gave. He needed to serve. He had to go all in. Before long, the Department of Corrections decided it was in everyone's best interest to separate him from other members of the family, so they transferred him to California Men's Colony. It was a progressive, reformative place with decent amenities, low violence, and even conjugal visits. Like Scandinavian prisons, the inmates had rooms to themselves instead of cells, and they were allowed to carry their own keys. He even got a job at the prison pharmacy, which is pretty impressive given his track record. He got married to a woman he'd met during the trial, fathered four children, divorced, and eventually founded his own prison ministry he calls Abounding Love. Charles Manson recorded a couple of surprisingly decent acoustic albums in jail, ranted and danced at every camera he saw, and ironically became the subhuman sex property of a neo-Nazi prison gang. He finally died in prison in 2017.
0: Charles Denton Watson has now been in prison for 48 years. Suzanne Struthers, the daughter of victim Rosemary LaBianca, and Susan Laburge, the daughter of victims Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring, have become unlikely but vocal advocates for his release as a reformed man. Despite their efforts, his parole's been denied 17 times. His next hearing comes up in 2021. He'll be 75 years old and maybe If he's lucky, Texas will finally call him home. By almost any objective measure, no one in the family has more literal blood on their hands than Tex Watson. But in almost every depiction of those two summer nights in 1969, he's treated like a pop history footnote, basically just scary murderer number three in Charlie's psychosexual slasher flick. But everyone knows the name Charles Manson. There's just something about the guy.
1: Up until the mid-20th century, the word cult was mostly used by hardline Christians to describe splinter groups that were too divergent from church orthodoxy to qualify as legit sects or denominations. The Quakers or Mormons, for example. There had been a vocal counter-cult movement in evangelical circles for decades at that point, but like we said, the 60s and the explosion of New Age spirituality changed everything. Teenagers back then, just like teens now and forever, glommed onto the newest, edgiest social trends. But even the more secular parents freaked out when their son came home from school one day wearing a tie-dyed dress and then frolicking around with finger tambourines. You're more than welcome to subtext the shit out of that, of course. But it was a fad, a phase. They'd grow out of it, they said. But mom and dad just didn't understand.
0: As the counterculture was going spiritual, the counter-cult movement was going mainstream, and the Manson family murders were the perfect manifestation of America's every unfounded fear. The savagery of the carnage, the drugs, the sex, the antisocial, anti-capitalist messages scrawled in blood, the depravity of it all. Any right-thinking American had no choice but to admit that the tabloids had been right. This was nothing short of demonic, satanic. Manson's wide-eyed, piercing stare has become synonymous with evil in America, and it still is. Seriously, go show any high schooler a photo of Charlie Manson and a photo of the vice president. See which one they recognize immediately, and which one they guess might be maybe some 90s movie vampire priest, an emotionally unavailable soccer coach, some cop's stepdad? Anyway.
1: Tex Watson may not be a household name, But in a decade that saw a presidential assassination in Dallas and the country's first mass school shooting in Austin, the public perception of Texas was already shot to hell. And Tex Wassum was just further proof that beneath the romantic cowboy veneer lurked a backwoods breeding round of terror. And the ripple effect had coursed through the state's cultural history from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Ted Cruz. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
0: When the verdict in the Manson trial came down, Sadie Atkins spun around in her chair, looked the jury in the eyes and shrieked, better lock your doors and watch your own kids. And those screams struck a frayed nerve in the collective consciousness and conscience of America. They couldn't shake the image of these beautiful young girls from Midwestern middle-class white families, drugged and brainwashed by the siren call of California heathenry, warped and corrupted by everything real America feared, hated, and made no effort to understand.
1: The word cult took on a new meaning, a small group of people completely beholden to a dangerous leader, one who separates them from their families, poisons them against outsiders, demonizes dissenters and critics, and demands unquestioning loyalty, devotion, and obedience. And that only makes Charlie Manson's quip to Rolling Stone in 1970 seem even more relevant and prescient today.
0: I'm just a mirror, he said. Anything you see in me is you. To be continued.